morning, uh, reading this morning is from Psalm 45. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of all the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Father, use these words to teach us about yourself, to teach us and show us who you are, God, and that we as your people might submit to you and hear these words and be glad to be your people. Father, speak to us, guide us, and above all, let you be the center of this time together as we read your word and study it together in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I will have to be brutally honest with you. So, good morning. Sorry, <laughs> Vinny. Good morning, Vinny. I'll have to be brutally honest with you. So, how I usually work through this, you know, the, um, uh, the sermon series about, well, probably almost... Well, nine months ago, usually every March, I lay out a year or more of what, what the sermon, what series are we going to go through, what books are we going to work through, all those kinds of things. And I decided we were going to do, through the summer, we're going to do a series on different psalms. And, uh, and I looked through all the different psalms, and I saw this one, and I went, yeah. But in March, I don't, like, dig deep into it. And so I'll be honest, at the beginning of this week, I read through it more deeply and I went, maybe I should just do a different one. Nobody would really know because I'm reading this going, this is like Song of Solomon. This is a little shocking. And you may be like, well, you should know, Mark. You read, Okay, give me a little bit of grace, right? Because the, once you start getting deeper into a passage, you start to see what it is. This is when I first saw this, and, I, and you can even ask Aaron this, when, when we were meeting on Tuesday, it, I was like, this is going to be hard, and I'd rather have an easy week 
So maybe I should just switch. And then there was this, of course, conviction of the Holy Spirit saying, how many times do you tell people to not avoid hard passages, you big baby? And so I said, okay. And in studying it, it actually, it was one of those things where God said, okay, to, to me, like, Mark, this is not for the church. This is also for you. You need to hear this too. You need to be reminded about this. And you know what? It's not as difficult as you think it is. You're just making it more difficult. And then as I studied it more, the beauty of it came out more. And I was more focused on not the Song of Solomon aspect of it, but what it was really trying to say. So as we're reading this, and as you, as you heard me saying it, you're probably going like, okay, this is interesting. Um, what is Mark going to talk about? Marriage? No. Is he going to talk about weddings? Nope. I mean, we'll, we'll discuss that. We'll, it'll come out. But the reality is this is, a, this is a love poem. And when we think of love poems in Scripture, of course, like I said, our mind goes to the Song of Solomon, right? You've got a groom and a bride, and then you've got the groomsmen and the maid, maid uh, what are they called? Maids, not maids of honor, the bridesmaids. Thank you. I should know that, right? Groomsmen and the bridesmaids, and they're, they're talking, if you've ever read through it, and there's this rich um, discussion of the groom and the bride. They're speaking to one another and talking of their love together. And when we think of love poems, even today, that's what we think of, right? Especially if we think of marriage, we think of the husband writing a poem to the wife, or the wife writing a poem to the husband to express their love. That is not Psalm 45. This is a love poem, but it is a love poem written for a royal wedding by someone other than the groom and the bride. The psalmist is an observer of the relationship. He's speaking directly to the couple, sort of like what a best man or a maid of honor would give a toast at the reception of a wedding, um, except for this is happening in the wedding itself. But it's not about how, like, you know, like, oh, I remember back in the day and these stories and things like that. The focus of the poem is not on the couple. The focus of the poem is on the groom, the king. And even the bride's joy and gladness are described in terms of her approaching the king's presence. So to work through this psalm, we're going to first take a look at how the king is described in the poem, and then we're going to look at how the bride is described, and then only then will then we apply it to our lives today as the people of God. So if you're taking notes and like you're like, oh man, the king, you got a whole half page, right? Well, you're going to be going to one side and then flipping it over, going to the bride on the other side, and then you're going to come back, go to the, the king, and then you're going to go to the bride just to give you a heads up if you take notes. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you don't need to worry about it. So the king, who is the king? There is genuine joy that flows from the poet's mouth. His heart is overflowing with desire to speak directly to his king. And his king is not an ordinary man. He is the most handsome and fairest of any of the sons of men, 
unmerited favor, grace and mercy flow from his lips. And so God blesses him forever. His king is powerful and majestic, utterly defeating his enemies, yet is righteous, just, and fair. He is anointed by God to rule and is honored by those who are in his court. Israel's king, because that, that is who this is speaking to, Israel's king is worthy of their glory, their praise, and their honor. And then the psalmist speaks to the king's bride. He calls her, listen carefully to what I have to say. She's about to be married to the king. And so he says, forget your people, forget your father's house. Now there's a risk today in saying these words, but she now belongs to the king. She is about to become his bride and he, her groom, they will become one. But should the bride hold on to her people and her family, she will forsake the union of oneness with her king. On the other hand, should the bride leave her family and cleave to her husband, honoring and submitting to him, she will be considered to be the richest of the people. Not rich in money, but rich in glory. Which is why verses 13 through 15 in this psalm speak of the bride's glory, beauty, joy, and gladness as she and her companions enter the king's presence in his palace. All that is described of the bride is described because of who she's marrying. The princess is marrying the king, and in doing that, she becomes queen. And her beauty is based off of his beauty. Her glory is based off of his glory. Her worth is found off of, based off of his worth. And so, very quickly, right, we're going right then to the application. What does this have to do with us today? I'm not a king, you're not a queen, whatever it may be. Like, we don't have those today. So what, how does this apply to us? Well, as always, the temptation for us is to read ourselves into the psalm first. It's a love poem. This must mean it's a love poem to me. That's not how it is. That's not at all how it is. We want to seek, how is this speaking to me individually? And then I'm going to apply it to my life as if this love poem was written specifically and personally to Mark or to whoever. The danger in doing this is that we tend then to make ourselves and our own lives the center of this psalm or any passage. But by working through what the psalmist actually says about the groom and the bride and seeing that the groom is at the center, we can then look to see what is said about the bride in light of what we are told about the king, about the groom. And in light of all of this, here are the basic questions then we have to ask ourselves. Well, who is the groom? Who is the bride? And what does this teach the nation of Israel? Because this psalm was written for a wedding but it was also written for a worship service. So why would the people of Israel be singing these things? Well, and then finally, we get to the question about ourselves. If we, 
as the church are now God's people, then what does this psalm teach us as a church? The king of Israel, specifically the Davidic line of kings, was to point someone beyond themselves. When we were going through 1 Samuel, we talked a lot about this, that from the beginning, starting with Adam and Eve, there was a building of anticipation of the appearance of the quote-unquote seed of Eve, who will crush the seed of Satan, restoring what the sin of the fall destroyed. Who is, who is this next seed? Who is this offspring of Eve who will rise up and defeat the serpent, defeat sin, defeat the death that came into the world, defeat Satan. There's this anticipation building to the point where even Adam and Eve expected Seth to be the one or, or Cain actually to be the one. And then you find out, no, it wasn't. Whether it was Noah or Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Saul, David, Solomon, all of the prophets that came after them, the hoped for Redeemer and Messiah never showed up. There was always this, maybe this is the guy. Even with King David, maybe this is the guy. He's the Messiah. He's going to bring Israel back to its glory God's going to use him, and then there's very quickly a, uh, uh, nope, not yet. David was great, but he was a flawed man. Solomon was wise, and by the end of his life, he was welcoming idols and marrying over and over and over again to foreign women who hated Yahweh. The king of Israel was a type of Messiah. The king of Israel was someone who represented and pointed the people of God to the true Messiah, but he was not the Messiah himself. He was not the Redeemer. And so as beautiful and as powerful and righteous and just and worthy of honor, glory, and praise as the king of Israel may have been, his life was not to point Israel to his greatness, but to the big K king's greatness that would one day come forward. He would redeem his people from the fall. He would restore them to a right relationship with God. He would defeat sin and death and Satan ultimately forever and ever. This is the long-awaited king, and his name is Jesus Christ. But you don't always have to take my word for it. Say, Mark, where do you get this? Well, actually from Scripture. The writer of Hebrews quotes in ver verses 6 and 7, the Psalm 45, verse 6 and 7, in Hebrews chapter 1, saying that it was written about the greatness, the glory, the beauty, and the power of the Son, of Jesus, Son Jesus Christ. A claim which the psalm gives, and I, did you... Don't know if you cop this or not. Right in the middle of it, there's this phrase, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Did you, did you hear that? He's describing the king, and then all of a sudden, he uses this word, God. Because remember, the psalmist is speaking to the king of Israel, and then in calling him God, which if you're a Greek freak or 
maybe not say geek, maybe say Greek geek, Elohim. So this isn't like some generic word for man. This is Elohim, God, big G, God. One could say that this phrase is maybe simply a spontaneous line of worship in the middle of describing the king, and then all of a sudden, like Paul does every once in a while, he'll just go on a, God is wonderful, God is great, blessed be his name. That kind of spontaneous worship, but the context doesn't point in that direction. Instead, the psalmist is calling the king God, not God's representative, but God himself. Now, how can this be? Because David and Solomon certainly were not God in the flesh. What is, what is he trying to say through this? Well, this love poem for a wedding is also a prophetic psalm. It points to something bigger and greater that will come in the future. This is where passages like Hebrews 1 are helpful. The king is God, a claim the New Testament makes over and over and over again about a specific person, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh, anointed by God the power, or God the Father with power and authority. That's in Acts chapter 10. He has victorious power over his enemies of sin, death, and Satan. And by his word, they are cut to the heart and they're defeated. That's in Revelation and in Hebrews. So all the characteristics that are given of the king in Psalm 45 are the same characteristics that the New Testament gives to Jesus Christ. So as Christ is the king, the groom, then he must have a bride, right? This psalm has, includes a bride. So who's the bride? The bride of Jesus Christ is the church. When speaking about husbands and wives, turn with me to actually to Ephesians chapter 5, because Paul, Paul speaks in this type of language in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as, he, as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The church of Christ, in these words from Paul, the church of Christ is the bride of Christ, the bride of the King of Kings. 
And like the bride of Psalm 45, she belongs to him and is to honor and submit to him. She is called to become one with her husband, which is why he quotes Genesis. Therefore, man shall leave his mother and father and cleave, become one with his wife. The bride, they're to, she's to forsake her people and her parents to be unified with the king. And you go, well, where is that found? Well, that's actually found in Matthew chapter 10, a well-known passage where Jesus says to his disciples, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Just as the bride is to leave her family, to be married to the king. Now, when he says forget your family, that doesn't mean like cutting them off and ignoring them for all of her life. She's going to visit her family. There's going to be relationships still. And Jesus means the same thing. When, when, when he saves us, there is a division. We have to let go of our family. We have to let go of the world and we need to cleave to Christ, our groom. We come to him and And when we do that and we say, Jesus is my groom. He's the one that I am attached to. He's the one that I love. He's the one that I want to honor. Guess what your family is going to do? If they are not part of the church, they will hate you. They will push against you. That's why he says, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword which will divide relationships and family." And if we love our family more than Christ, he says, you're not worthy of me. I am to be the greatest treasure in your life. I am to be the most valuable thing in your life. That doesn't mean ignore your family and treat them horribly. It means if it comes between my wife and Jesus, Jesus wins. That's not popular. Because what does that say to my wife? That she's unimportant? Now, if she's a believer, and my wife has said this to me, if Jesus is not more important than her, she will correct me on that. I am not your God, Mark. I am not your groom, if you want to bring it into context. Christ is. And in being unified with Christ, He is the one that we look to. He is the one that we give honor to. And all of this, the bride, the church, will be made glorious and beautiful, filled with joy and gladness, considered to be the richest of all the people. Why? Not because of her glory and honor and praise, but because he belongs or she belongs to the glorious, powerful, honorable, righteous, and just king. Now, if you say, well, that's really harsh. Okay, let's just take 
us as a church. We have no warts. We have no concerns. Have, have you ever been a part of a church that's never had any issues before? They may be glorious and beautiful on the outside, but then when you get into the politics of the church, you're like, ew. That's the church without Christ. Our beauty does not come from us as Elm Creek. It does not. Our beauty and our splendor and any glory that we have come because we follow the King. He is our groom. He makes us beautiful. Jesus Christ makes His bride, the church, princes in all the earth. And this is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Okay, so this is what he's saying. The church, individually and corporately, the church is a chosen race, royal priest, holy nation, beautiful. Why? Because Christ makes us beautiful. Individually and corporately. The point of all of this poetic language well just as the bride reflects the glory and honor and splendor of the king of israel to all the nations and the peoples of the earth so the people of god are to do the same we who today are the people of god the church are the bride of christ and we are called to see and reflect the glory and honor and splendor of the king to all nations to all the peoples of the earth. We are not called to reflect us. Look how caring we are. Look at the great Panera we have. Today was awesome, by the way. It's been like a month since we've had cinnamon rolls, but it was awesome, right? That's not what makes us great. It's not what makes us beautiful. And that's not the point. If we never had Panera, if we never had a building, if we'd even have air conditioning, if we didn't have a sound system, if we didn't have any of these things that we hold so dear as a church, we would still be splendorous and beautiful in glory because our God never changes. Because He is here, that makes us beautiful. And we belong to Him, that makes us glorious. This psalm, though, is not and I, we have to remind ourselves about this. We can't be walking around, I'm beautiful because Jesus loves me. That's true, but that's not what this poem, remember, is centered around. This psalm is not about us as the people of God. It's about God. And just as the bride is only made a queen when the king is united to her, so we are the bride of Christ only because Christ unites with us. He makes us his bride. This psalm is about the greatness and the beauty and the power of King Jesus, not Elm Creek, not Mark Donaldson. As the bride of Christ, we are beautiful and glorious, the richest of all the people, only because we belong to the King. 
To put it in modern terms, our identity as the bride of Christ is precisely that. We belong to him. The Bible says our life is not our own. Our life is his, and we are his. Who and what we are is wrapped up completely in the character and the being of our groom. At Elm Creek, we've got warts, we've got issues, we've got problems. I have issues, I have problems, I've got warts. Just ask my family. Heck, ask anybody who's been here longer than like 10 weeks or maybe one week. I have issues, you have issues, but that is not what defines us as the church of Christ. He defines us. Now, that doesn't mean we can just, you know, not work on our warts and not work on our issues. But our sin doesn't define us anymore because we are the bride of the King. We belong to Him the lies of our society, and maybe even the lies of our own heart will tell us that we must live for ourselves, that who we are is found in how many followers we have or how many likes we have. But as God's people, we are told in the Bible not to live for ourselves, but that our joy is wrapped up And not fulfilling our own desires, but fulfilling the king's desires. Not forsaking anyone for the sake of myself, but forsaking myself for the sake of him. God's word tells us the opposite of what our own hearts and what this world says. Our worth is found only in him. And if we should forsake the things of this world... To use the terms of the psalm, our people and our Father's house, then we will desire, He will desire our beauty. Did you catch that too? If the bride would forsake his, her father, her Father's house, and her people, then the King will desire her beauty. Because she's doing it for His sake. If we should forsake, This world, the things of this world, the things of our own heart, he will desire our beauty because our beauty is found in him and not in the things of this world. A beauty which is wrapped up and found only in the love of our glorious king. Do we, if we are a child of God, if you're an unbeliever, you're just like, this is a really, really weird love song to love poem to God and forsaking myself and dying to myself and that's just weird but I get that I get get that if you're not a believer this does sound weird but if we are God's children if we are Christians we hear this and we find peace we find joy And we know that our worth is not found in this world. It's found in Him. And so whatever may happen in the future, no matter what people may say about us, no matter what kind of tribulation or pain or sorrow or troubles that we find and have in this world, those things don't define us. He does. That's where we find our peace. That's where we find our identity. That's where we find our worth is in the love of our glorious 
king. You say, well, how do I apply that to my life? Well, it'd be easy to just say, just do it. <laughs> just do it. Like, oh, just trust in Jesus. Well, that's easy said, hard done, right? But as God's people, we know that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Once we are his bride, he never divorces us. He never kicks us out of his house. He never leaves us and never forsakes us as his people, which means he's always with us. He's always guiding us, and he's always changing us and transforming us, sanctifying us, as the Bible says, to be more and more conformed into the image of the king. And so we know, as his bride, he will continue to make us more and more glorious and splendorous and beautiful. Because of him and for him. And that gives us peace and gives us joy. How do we, how do we apply this? I just live for Christ, study him, love him. When he reveals things in our life that we have placed above him as our idol, as our God, remember that we're to throw those gods into the fire and fight to be obedient and, and devoting ourselves to him completely, not to earn his love, we're already his bride, but because he's our groom, he's our God, he's our king, and we want to please him more and more and love him more and more, and he wants to do that for us. Find courage, encouragement in that. Father, I pray for us today, even as your church, there are days or weeks or months that, that come where we are overwhelmed, that the things of this world overwhelm us, or even, Father, there are things maybe right now in our own hearts that you are revealing that we have placed above you. We have placed our family or our friends or our church or our morality, all anything, God, above you. I pray that you would strengthen us to reject those things to bow before you, to give you the glory and the greatness that you deserve. You are our king. We are to worship you. You are our God. You are our redeemer. You are our savior. And we glorify you for that. Remind us as your bride, Father, this week that our beauty is not found in the things of this world, but in you alone. And you find joy in gazing upon our beauty when we leave all those desires and those things of this world, we lay them aside and turn to you for our joy and our, our glory and our splendor. You see our beauty, Father, and you desire us. You want us, not because of us, but because of you and for you and for you alone. Let us as a church reflect this to the world around us, Father, that we are not about us. We are not about our desires. We are about you, and you are our king. Encourage us, convict us, grab a hold of us, guide us and strengthen us as your people. We ask this, Father, in your name. Amen. Let you stand. We'll sing our final song together.